This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to GabFest Reads for the month of December. I'm John Dickerson. Good to be back after a bit of a hiatus. I'm here to talk to Christine Colson, the author of One Woman Show. This is Christine's latest book. She's also the author of the best-selling Metropolitan Stories. They're both jewels, intricate storytelling, and a delight to read. Christine, welcome to GamFest Reads. Hi. And before I start, I should note that um, Chris and I know have known each other for a long time, which I say in the interest of transparency, um, and also explain why sometimes I will call her Chris, though her name is Christine. And with the other thing I should mention before we go into the actual volume is that... Um, Chris worked at the Met for 25 years as a writer um, in development in the director's office and in the Department of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts, which is a very important thing to understand because of the form and content of this book. So let's get right into it, Chris. Um, the the challenge in talking about your book is part of the what's so wonderful about it. Um, and so maybe we, we will show uh, listeners... Um, some of the complexities in the way we talk about it. So I would be traditionally, I would say, well, immediately we have to talk about the form of your book. We have to do that before we do the origin story, but I think, but stories are better than exposition. So I want to jump right into the origin story. Where and when were you and what were you doing when you decided, ah, I would like my next book to be in this form. Yeah, well, it's actually uh, kind of interesting because I can pinpoint exactly where I was standing, what was happening, who I was with um, when I had the idea, and that's kind of rare for a novelist. I was at the Met, and the really the last project I did there was to write the wall labels for the new British galleries that opened in 2020. Um, and that was a very collaborative process with seven curators who were involved in that project. And the curator who was in charge of it really wanted the galleries themselves to have their own voice. So I was a kind of speechwriter for the galleries. And that meant collaborating with very different, very brilliant curators um, to decide what story we we're going to tell. Labels have great restrictions. Um and they tend to have that all-knowing institutional voice. But most importantly, they can only be 75 words. So you really do have to pick a story for every object. And those meetings were sometimes great fun and sometimes not as fun. Um, and after one of them that was particularly difficult, I remember thinking as I watched my colleague walk away in frustration, um, gosh, I'd really love to write a label about him. And then I kind of thought, oh, I could do that. I could write labels about people using the language of art and applying it to the human experience. And it turns out that's kind of a thrilling thing to do. And I want to get into the thrill of that, um, both because of the commonalities, the way you observe art 
and the things you have to say about art and how that um, maps really neatly onto human experience and then how also it teaches us something new about human experience. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the form. Remind, give people a tiny bit more on what wall labels do, right? Anybody who's been to a museum knows what these are, but but they are of an of a super restrictive and particular form and require the person writing them, which is to say you in your what used to be your day job, to make a lot of big choices. Um, and so explain that process a little bit. So everyone knows this this particular um, element of the museum experience. You've got a work of art, and then to the right, you've got um, this pithy little description. Um, and that form um, has a particular voice. Um, it's it's notoriously boring, which I had to fight. But um, it's almost more like poetry than prose. You're kind of every word has to work. Every phrase has to sing. You've got to kind of jam up all these clauses against one another to get everything in that you want to say. But inevitably, what you need to do is pick a story. So, you know, if I if we were writing about a silver teapot, well, we could talk about the maker. We could talk about the owner. We could talk about um, tea in the slave trade. We could talk about middle-class consumption in 18th century England. We could talk about any of those things, but we couldn't talk about all of those things. So inevitably, we I was asking the person who knows everything about this object to leave most of what they know out because we only had 75 words. So that decision of what to focus on, what story to tell, very much inflects this book because in the end, I'm creating a kind of retrospective exhibition of a life. And so naturally, I am picking moments um, to capture in these labels. But I do want the reader to eventually wonder what's being left out of that story. It's fantastic. And as um, listeners who will have come over from our um, podcast, The Gab Fest, know that I have for the 17 years we've been around, been obsessed with the idea of restraint in all of its different forms. So we're going to have a big romp into the idea of restraint because uh, there's just so much there. Restraint is like a creative force, though. I mean, there's nothing better. I mean, and artists use it all the time. I mean, artists decide they're going to paint on a certain size canvas or that they're only going to use charcoal or whatever it is. I mean, people are always making up constraints for themselves in order to unleash creativity. All right, you beat me to it. And I don't want to leave, I, I don't want to leave character behind because that's going to be get too abstract for people. But you've already said something that's um, really important, which is Frank Geary said that the worst project he was ever given was, I think, a Disney something or other, where they said, do whatever you want. You know, he had right. unlimited budget, <laughs> unlimited everything. Nothing more paralyzing than do whatever you right. want. Right. And so yeah. since you are an art historian, play out that idea of restraint in artists and in some of the famous um, examples of that. Your novel here is this incredible work of restraint, which we'll get to. And I want to talk about the craft of that. But just from your art history perspective, are there some instances... Um, I mean, obviously, you know, sculptors are constrained by the marble they use. Um, give me some other artistic ways in which constraints have been, I can think with writing, obviously sonnets. Well, and a lot of artists are using not the um, not physical constraints as much as conceptual ones. If you think of an artist like Mark Rothko, 
constantly invoking the same form and and creating canvases that are um, structured in a similar way, but a, with different kind of um, technique and and vibrancy to them. Um, he's exploring. He he lands on his form and then for the rest of his life paints using that construct um, and and explores it in the most fruitful way. Um, and so there's a lot of artists who do that, you know, Richard Serra and his black paint stick. Um, it's amazing what you can get out of that once you make those fundamental choices. Sometimes it's a it's sort of similar to a novel in the sense that it's a it's a serial form. So, you know, I've decided I'm going to write this in wall labels. And that was a um, fundamental decision I had to land on um, because the text that I had written, the 50 pages I had written up until the point where I wrote the first label um, was so uninteresting compared to that label that I had to just throw it out. And it was very obvious that the whole thing needed to just be done in labels. Um, and I think consistently, um, I thought it for my first book and I think it for this one too, it's amazing how game readers are to take these leaps. Um, they'll do it. And I love that. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Let me um, ground everybody now. So if you haven't figured it out by now, listeners, um, uh, Chris's book is written entirely, essentially entirely in wall labels which chris do can we say is this the first of its form has this has it ever been done before to my knowledge uh this is the first of its form yes anyway it centers around the life of and depending this name changes but um carolyn margaret brooks whitaker known as kitty 
why this character. So we know when you came up with the idea for the labels and using the labels as a way to to describe human characters. But why and where did Kitty come from? So Kitty was just an experiment. I just decided to do it to see if I could. Um, And I just described this kind of patrician Park Avenue woman standing in the Mets galleries. It's a pretty um, usual occurrence. And I just decided to try and write that. Um, And I liked the way it turned out. And so I kind of challenged myself to write like, well, what if I wrote 20 labels about this woman? Um, So this book was not, I didn't plan to write about um, this kind of wealthy, not always likable 20th century woman called Kitty. She kind of showed up and then I followed her. Um, I didn't, I don't write in a linear way. Every time I write a label and I did this when I was writing labels for the Met as well, um, I tape it to the wall. And so I'm writing on a wall and I was just kind of populating Kitty's story as I thought about things to write. And then it kind of all spread like an ink blot um, throughout the course of a century. So Kitty just kind of wound up taking over. Um, because she had a lot to say, and she's interesting. I mean, I wanted to write in the language of porcelain, so I needed a, a kind of porcelain life. Um, Kitty certainly has that, but I love the language of porcelain as a kind of fundamentally human um, material. It's kind of hard but fragile. It has, for in Kitty's case, very limited utility. Um, but made of fire. Uh, It's easily moved and grouped with other um, objects. Um, And it's really hard to hide its damage. And so that idea of having this um, glaze and this varnish, but having cracks below the surface. um, You know, in museums, we talk about um, when anything has a flaw, we say it has condition issues. And I think there's like nothing more human than like we all have condition issues. Well, that's one of the wonderful ways in which the language of, for those of us who don't know it, the the language of uh, art and uh, these labels speaks to us about our human experience in a way that is fresh for us. I mean, in other words, it tells us something we already feel, but puts it in language that is um, revelatory. I liked also at one point you write that um, uh, sensitive conservation is less about what one does than when one stops. Um, <laughs> again, <laughs> that true applies to many faces in our yeah, city. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and also is also about, you know, it's another actually, uh, it's another act of restraint. Well, I also think that, you know, this kind of, um, writing again is a lot about what's not there on the page. So, you know, usually you look at a work of art and then you look at the label as a kind of explanation. Um, and here Every label um, is opposite a blank page. Um, So half this book is blank. And that to me is kind of a different paradigm for a label. It's like label as catalyst. 
So as you read each description of these moments in this woman's life, I want you to be conjuring what I'm describing. And that can take a lot of forms, but the reader then becomes complicit in like making these works of art with me. Um, I never describe what Kitty looks like. I never describe what she's wearing. Like that doesn't interest me. What I wanted to talk about is what was happening to Kitty. And this happens all the time, right? When we read, if we read a passage about in a traditional novel about a, a battle scene or a dinner party, we're making that image in our head based on the words on the page. So this is kind of formalizing that relationship in a way that I really um, enjoyed. I like the fact that in order to um, travel this path with me, you've got to be really in it and, um, and kind of actively making as well. Because in the in the end, I've got a you know this is a neat party trick to be able to write a label about a person, but it's also it has to work as a novel. I need character development. I need plot. I need you to be emotionally engaged. So I think this is probably a good place to um, give people just a little taste. Now the question is of which what do we you want to give people a taste of? First one of the wall writings that you did for Kitty. The first very first thing. You wrote, and I also want to talk about the 20 pages you threw away. The first one is interesting. The The first one I ever wrote. Yes, and just to, to stumble in there with my own um, theories is, since this is a book about a, a person who is possessed and arranged and shuttled from kind of um, display to, a sp- to display and opening to opening and... Um, What's lovely about the tombstone and the way it changes is both as a cumulative thing, it constantly reinforces Kitty's role in society as an object um, and the struggle. Yeah, because that's how she's like a work of art more than anything, because she is constantly evaluated, critiqued, and and prized, and ultimately collected from her earliest childhood throughout her life. Um, That's why it works that way. The parallels become so similar. And I talk about her vitrine, which are kind of the limitations of where she's allowed to kind of operate and how she wants to how much she really wants to transgress against that that constraint. Um, Because it's not like Kitty wants to be a CEO. You know, she's not, she's not that ambitious, but she wants, um, she does want a certain kind of power and agency. And sometimes she figures that out and sometimes she doesn't. And so this works both to reinforce an ongoing theme in the, in the work, but then also because it changes with different parts of her life and different things that happen to her, it also has a kind of individual resonance within each individual wall label. So, which is, I feel like is true with the book, which is there's a, there's a cumulative story and constant threads and then individual episodes, which is, adds a nice complexity. All right. Give us Matron. Matron, age 91, 1998. Caroline Margaret Brooks Whitaker Wallingford de Braganza Dean, known as Kitty. Ex-collection of Martha and Harrison Whitaker, William Wallingford III, Luis Carlos Alfonso Antonio de Braganza, and George Robert Hoppington Dean. Kitty's glaze has yellowed, hardened after too many years on display. Beneath a perfectly stiffened crown, every joint and tendon flexes. Bones are stacked like wooden blocks, not a single swag interrupting their rigid architecture, anchored by the parallel position of her sensibly, expensively clad feet. Fastened with button wool precision, 
pressed into austere luxury, Kitty clutches her purse preventatively, as if a mugging is already in progress. So much has been stolen from her. So I wrote that first. That was the first label I ever wrote. But why I wrote that last line, so much has been stolen from her, I mean, I just wrote it, and I never touched that label again. Um, And then throughout the book, that kind of stealing became a theme, um, because I think that's the counterpoint to um, possession and ownership. Um, Kitty does have a kind of mild, petty theft habit, um, which I think was a way of of showing she understands what's happening to her. She understands... um, what that means, and she's she's a little transgressive, um, but I do think it's interesting that that, that line appeared um, from the very beginning. So I want to ask you why you picked why Kitty at age ninety one comes in because although the book doesn't have page numbers, which you can explain shortly, it's we're going you're going out the door when you get to Matron. So it's in, so why do you think that Kitty at age ninety one was the first part of her that struck you? I think it was just I described this woman in the galleries. I just thought I, I just picked somebody and wrote about her and I just gave her um, that age. I didn't give her that name until later, but I did call her Kitty. And then I just I just constructed that that image and um, that whole purse clutching thing, I think, is um, is interesting as a way of of representing a kind of vulnerability um, and. You, again, like why I wrote so much has been stolen from her and then constructed an entire narrative around that. Um, you know, the last label in the book was probably the third one I wrote. So I was always writing to that ending. Um, and I don't want to give that away now, but I but I knew that. Um, I did that in my first novel too. I kind of like writing to an ending. There's something very structurally satisfying about that. And there's there's hard work to be done in making sure that the reader is prepared for that ending and is going to buy it. Um, and so particularly cause I tend to go off the rails a little bit um, on those things. So I, I like that, that hard work of making sure you're going to make that leap with me when the time comes. Where, did you spend more of your time taking stuff out or putting stuff in? Yeah, that's the thing about writing labels. You don't you don't write a long a long label and then try and get it down to seventy five words. You try and nail it on the first go. So there's a lot of clicking word counts. <laughs> so that's the main part of the process is that you try and write it, um, and and nail it at seventy five words, and and it, I mean there's a ridiculously satisfying joy when you do do it in exactly 75 words um, because you become able to predict that. Um, But you never try and write something complicated and then make it tight um, or write something in a shorthand and then expand it. You try and nail it on the first go. And I think the best, some of the best labels in this book are ones where um, I, I nailed it right away and then never touched it again. There's a there's a real uh, challenge in that getting every word to work in just the right way, um, and you know it when you've got it. When you were dealing with some of these themes that go throughout the labels, so you're talking in that instance about <clears throat> nailing an individual single label, but there are themes that go through work throughout them. Did you find that when you were writing one about a particular time, because this spans the life of of a woman? Yeah, she's born in 1906. Right. And so, end of a country, end of an age. I mean, there's a lot going on. It's not just her life. But um, did you find yourself in writing individual 
um, labels that you said, well, okay, I've created a to-do list, which must be achieved in earlier labels or just in one single label, or, I mean, in other words, did it send you, you had to say, okay, there has to be a depression era one, or there has to be a marriage one or something like that. Not always. I think as things happen, you'd realize that, um, oh, I should fill this in or I need to, um, or I've taken too big of a leap here. I mean, one of the things that happens overall in the structure of the book that I do think was important is that when Kitty is young and filled with potential, and according to this um, curator's um, assessment, incredibly beautiful, um, there's lots of labels about Kitty at that point. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of interest in her. Um, but the the book kind of funnels as she ages and the world um, stops looking with such um, avid interest in her. And so there are points later in her life where we skip whole decades um, because the gaze that we were engaged with when she was young um, is no longer as active. So that's a huge point to me, it, it, because I think it speaks to the larger point you were making about the book earlier, which is that the, the empty spaces are the are the interesting things to pay attention to. The empty space in that instance being the frequency or rapidity of, of wall labels as she gets older, which is to say they diminish. And that's a thing w- which is a perfect illustration of what you're saying. It's what's not there that's telling you something. Right. Or in the case of like her friends, you know, she's got um, what I call her garniture, which is a um, kind of porcelain term for a group of related objects. It's the only word I define in the book, um, mainly because a lot of uh, curators I know when I asked them what a garniture was, um, said they thought it meant parsley. Um, (laughs) Like European paintings curators don't use that word. So I had to define that one. But I talk about Kitty and her garniture as her group of friends. And we are introduced to them in Kitty's first marriage. They're all bridesmaids and there are four of them. um, And they all think they're, there's always a centerpiece in a garniture and they all think they're the centerpiece. So there's that, that competition among them was is really important as well. Um, But we see them in the 1920s when she first gets married and then we don't revisit them again until the 1960s. Um, and we kind of check in with them after a lot has happened to Kitty and we see where they are. And now it's the 1960s. There's a whole other set of opportunities available to women. And some have taken advantage of those and some haven't. But to toggle between those two things and really be able to get it done um, between those two 75-word um, moments to understand the path of these women. Um, I was really interested in that, that that was possible. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do the individual labels map to the kinds of labels one would write for the artistic periods 
that they are a part of. Some of them, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a whole cubism strain through this um, with you know, Kitty gets a, a, a Brock painting um, for her first marriage from her in-laws. And I liked that. I liked giving her a Brock because I knew she'd be annoyed that it wasn't a Picasso um, because, you know, uh, even though you at that moment in art history, you they're indistinguishable from one another. There's a kind of brand um, value to Picasso that uh, Kitty pouts about a little bit. Um, but there was a kind of cubist theme that kept popping up. And then I realized at some point, you know what, there's a reason for that. And some of the some of those cubism labels are very traditional in making sure people understand um what cubism, cubism is so that they actually realize what we're doing with this whole novel is cubist. Um, that idea of the part standing in for the whole, the idea of looking at um, things um, in a sort of fractured way, all on the same picture plane, um, but having to discern, oh, that's a bottle and that's a newspaper and that's a table. Um, and there's a lot left out. And so I liked that idea of... Um, invoking cubism so that, you know, even if you don't realize that's what's going on, I think there are visual metaphors that are working in the structure of the book. But here's the question then. Also, there's that wonderful line, which I won't spoil who it comes from, but it's not just the part is standing in for the whole. It's that the part and these arrangements of the parts are getting at a more true essence of the whole than if you'd painted the most representational photorealistic painting. Yes, I think that that's true. Though, at the same time, so every once in a while, as you're reading the labels, there are these interruptions. There are these pages of dialogue that show up. Um, and those, I envision those as like, imagine you're standing in a museum. We've all had this experience. You're reading the wall label. And then there are all those people behind you talking um, who have lots of opinions about what you're looking at and what you're reading, and they they kind of contradict the um, the essence of what's being said in that label. There was a certain point when I had written probably 40 or 50 labels where the architecture of the book and the sort of rigidity of the label form, um, it was so solid that I thought, okay, now it, we need to blow it up a little bit, um, and there needs to be a kind of disruption uh, and so I started to insert these moments of dialogue that were happening um, sort of contemporaneously with whatever the um, label was describing. And that gave Kitty a voice. It gave um, a lot of people, characters in the book, um, a way of, of speaking about what actually might be happening as opposed to this retrospective view of this life. And so I loved the energy that that created in sort of undermining the authority of these labels a little bit. And again, activating the reader to think like, oh, wait a minute. Um, you know, who does get to tell Kitty's story and what do we really know about it? And um, and I think that's true. It's a very modern sense, right? Like, you know, think of what we present to the world on Instagram or, you know, how we curate our own stories and what we leave out. Um, and again, that it seemed like these bits of dialogue were not only reinforcing that idea, but also kind of stimulating a bit of curiosity about um, what might have happened and what might have been. George O'Keefe said, "To see takes time." There's a woman you may you may know her, Jennifer Roberts at Harvard, who teaches art history and requires her students, I think, as a precondition for the class or in the first class or something, to go 
pick one piece of art and and look at it for three hours. You cannot leave and you cannot bring your phone. Love that. I was just up at um, Williams and uh, I was speaking up there and one of the, the women who interviewed me there is the chairman of the art history department and she was telling me she can always tell when the students have actually gone to the museum to look at the work of art versus looking at an image of it. Um, because, you know, they'll leave out something like they can't, they can't see in the, in the, um, image that there's like actually a tear on the cheek of the sculpt, the sculpture and which is the the whole sculpture is about that tear. Um, but they're talking about how the artist, you know, modeled the earlobe or the hair or something. Um, so I think that, that physical confrontation with art, um, and taking that on is, it, it's really satisfying. I just, um, I, I think people don't realize how um, available it is to them. In terms of the voices, so one of the things you're playing with is who gets to tell the story and is the story you're coming to as a reader informed? How much are you as a reader putting in? How much is the person who's writing the wall labels putting in? How much is the curator? And I'm this is I'm backing into this question. Like how many voices should we be think looking for I mean, is the curator of this collection different than the writer of the wall labels? Um, is the those asides you mentioned earlier um, that disrupt the wall labels? I don't think it's that um, complicated. I think actually it all kind of just tumbles along. And so I think the labels have a kind of structure and ground the whole um, the whole book and the story. Um, but those interruptions kind of add energy to that rhythm. Um, and so I think when you come to the end of it, I think you have, um, you have a sense of Kitty. You have, I think, often great empathy for Kitty. Um, and you've got some questions, but in a way that's not um, confusing, but actually kind of animating. I've heard all kinds of theories about um, the ending of this book um, that I can honestly say I had not considered, um, but I like them. So I'm happy to take credit for them. But I don't think it's complicated in that um, it's a mystery to be solved or it's a puzzle. Um, I think while you're reading it, it just kind of chugs along um, and all these things are happening and are active. But I think the um, I think it's better if you're if you're thinking about them afterward. Not I think it's it's broken if you're thinking about them while you're reading, and you're going, "Whoa, what's happening here?" Whatever. I want you to be kind of surprised when that first bit of dialogue shows up, but kind of pleasantly so. Um, and I know from people they started to kind of um, anticipate those pages and enjoy when they popped up. Um, they look a little different, and there was a different sensibility to them. Um, and people like hearing Kitty. Um, but I don't think they should add confusion. Um, you know, I had a lot of readers for this book, um, you among them, uh, when I was writing it because I wanted to make sure um, that clarity um, was there. I also wanted to make sure that this was even sustainable. Um, I think you you read uh, probably the first 20 pages um, and came back with a pretty hard no, <laughs> like it's not working. <laughs> I think that might. <laughs> Which I loved. But no, no, no. I don't think there would be a book without that because, frankly, there's nothing better um, to my mind than actually hearing, like, I get it, but 
I'm not sure it's there because you just double down on it. It's not like I was going to say like, ah, then, you know, maybe I'll scrap this. It's just that way of making you really roll up your sleeves and say like, okay, I'm not doing it the way I want to. So now I've got a, you know, my favorite um, uh, quote is from Merce Cunningham, uh, which a colleague of mine used to have on the wall at the museum. Um, And it was, it says, the only way to do it is to do it. And I feel that way about these kind of wacky ideas I have, which no one's done, but it's like, well, then the only way to do it is to do it. And then if it's not working, that's okay too, because you just you just haven't done it yet. Um, and so to me, that, that constant feedback from people, um, art world people and non-art world people, um, reading for me to understand um, what was working and where the liabilities were um, was super important. We can adjudicate if that's exactly the message I sent. <laughs> Clearly, that's the one that was implied. But um, what you said and what I heard, you know. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so now uh, you've given us a little window into your process, um, but give us a little bit more. You mentioned that you posted these on the wall. Um, help people understand where you wrote this, how you wrote it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a. Um... I'm a very uh, rigorous writer. So um, I had the idea for this book in, let's see, it's spring of 2019 uh, when that moment happened that we described earlier. Um, but then I didn't write anything down. I don't, I'm, in fact, I'm the exact opposite of you and I don't write anything down ever. Um, I don't keep a journal. I don't take notes. Um, I really believe the things that I need, I will remember. Um, and so that idea, like to write labels about people sat in my head for about two years. And I like that. I feel like, um, withholding is a big part of my process, um, distinctly not writing something down, but having that idea and like going to visit it every once in a while, see what's cooking, how's it going and then leaving it. Um, so when I sit down to write, um, and both books that I wrote took exactly a year to write. Then I go into a mode that is almost like superstitious. Like I, I eat the same breakfast at the same place in the same chair every single day. Um, I write exactly from 10 to three every day, no getting out of the chair, no breaks. You know, sometimes I feel like creativity is like, um, waiting for a bus like you have to be there when the bus comes. And so by imposing that five hours on myself, um, I'm there when it shows up. And I think that's super important and it's always worked. So as I sit there plugging away, some days are amazing and some days, you know, not so great. But um, I think treating, I think that comes probably from going to an office for 25 years too, having that structure. Um, and so... I then will write something um, and then I tape it to the wall um, in a vague position of where I think the, the, the wall ends up to be like uh, rows and rows of pages. Um, and so I'm also working structurally with the book, but that's a visual process for me. Um, and even to understand the, you know, there are labels about Kitty, but then there are labels about kind of you know, what we would call in a museum, a kind of comparative material. So um, her friends in the garniture, her parents, um, different characters who come into the book. So the rhythm of when they appeared um, 
was important. So I would mark those pages in a way so I could see that rhythm, um, where that dialogue was showing up, how frequently it was showing up. All of that becomes apparent because it's on the wall. And so that I think I'm just innately a visual person. And so that is really important to me to understand um, how that is all working. Um, and then I edit physically on the wall. So I, I, I write on a laptop, I print those pages out, but then I stand in front of the wall and I hand edit on the wall. Um, and then every Friday, the wall, the edits get integrated and the wall gets updated, which is like my uh, version of meditation or something. <laughs> you tape all the pages back onto the wall. Um, so the, the I have images of the book as it was written. And, and I, you know, every once in a while, there's a there will be a sticky note where an idea comes. I don't have a page for that yet, but it's something that could happen. Um, and so the whole thing kind of um, unfurls itself. Um, but I I feel like that rigor, that discipline, um, it kind of goes with the constraint, but um, that's the only way it works. That's the only way I can do it. So you, as I recall, went, were an intern at the Met from the early days, yeah. right? Like. Were you still in college? Uh, no, I was, it was between college and graduate school. Did you know when you were an intern there that you wanted to be in the Met and therefore the 25 years you spent there, that's that's what yes. you wanted? Okay. Yeah. The second I had gone you know, to the Met my whole life, but the, the second you get to kind of go through that door and get back to those back halls and all those gray areas that are so different from all those shiny gallery spaces, like I wanted in. Hundred percent. And do you find in the two novels you've now written that you are touching an original interest of yours in art and the world and seeing things and exploring the human condition, which is a part of what your life in art is? That, in other words, you are touching touching something from that kind of formative early period, or that this is the evolution of your life in art the way it existed for 25 years at the Met or some combination of the two? Well, it's a combination of, uh, I've always looked at the world through um, works of art, through objects. I, I, I love that. But my, like, I'm a one trick pony. Like I can write. I've always been able to write. I think because I didn't have a lot of friends when I was little. <laughs> and so I read. I All I did was read all the time. And I think because of that, um, I could always write. And so when I got to the museum, I was actually hired, um, not as an intern, but when I came back after graduate school, I was hired to write exhibition descriptions. Um, and that was you know, what I could do. And that was always the thing I could do at the museum. And so there was all sorts of um, ways in which I deployed that for the 25 years, but I was in the context of what I loved um, and what I find to be the most uh, potent way to sort of process the world. You know, I'm not a religious person, but I find great solace in beauty. Um, and I find great joy in beauty. And so the, to, to be in the Met every day um, was as important to me um, kind of psychologically uh, as it was uh, professionally. It's just, it's just how I consume um, history and humanity so I'm not, I don't think it's a real stretch to see the books I've written based on 
the way I see the world. Um, I don't think, you know, the next book is going to be about, you know, um, the life of a plumber. Well, now let's <laughs> not know, think, just... let's not give up that constraint as a possible route to art, Chris. <laughs> don't give up that dream. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, these. it was interesting for me, you know, having written that first novel about the Met, which was, you know, a love letter to that place and the people who you often don't um, think about there, um, you know, the guys who changed the light bulbs and all of those people who I adore and really grew up with. But I said what I had to say about the museum in that book. And so this was an interesting moment to kind of take my experience at the Met and apply it to a different kind of book that wasn't actually about the museum, but was sort of of the museum. Well, it is full of joy and wonder and fascination and skill and all of those hard days you spent never getting up from the chair definitely show themselves uh, in the book, Chris. Um the book is One Woman Show by Christine Colson. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. That's it for this month's edition of GabFest Reads. Our producer is Shana Roth. Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations and Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. We'll be back next month with my conversation with Brad Stolberg about his book, Master of Change. Until then, all three of us will be back in your feed Thursday with a new episode of the Slate Political Gab Fest. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.